You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. Welcome to Dental Talk. I'm Dr. Phil Klein. I'm excited to be here today at Spear Education in Scottsdale, Arizona, as the moderator of our panel discussion, The Future of Dentistry. In addition to our panel, I'd like to say that I'm honored to sit in the presence of 60-plus exceptional dental clinicians, educators, and writers. It's the folks in this room that really help all of us provide the best dental care to our patients. Before we begin, I would like to thank GC for their hospitality and sponsorship of this incredibly fun, entertaining, and collaborative educational key opinion event. Our all-star panel includes four distinguished key opinion leaders. Please note I have drastically shortened each of their illustrious bios, so by no means judge them by my very abbreviated introductions. With us today is Dr. Matt Najad, a graduate from the Herman Ostro School of Dentistry at USC. Dr. Najad provides advanced training for dentists around the world and conducts research on dental materials and adhesion, particularly in the field of biomimetic dentistry. Dr. Stephen Schiffenhaus is a graduate of Midwestern College of Dental Medicine who holds a master's degree in molecular and cellular biology from Arizona State University. Dr. Sabia Bunnick is a graduate of University of Michigan School of Dentistry. Uh, now, she's a big Wolverines fan, and I think she gave up watching the game today to yeah, show but up. We this, won. But we won. Okay. She is CEO of Dental Advisor, and she's the owner of Bunnick Dental Studio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And finally, also joining us is Bob Morgis, Dr. Bob Morgis, a graduate from the University of Iowa College of Dentistry. Dr. Morgis is currently an adjunct professor in the Department of Operative Dentistry at the University of Iowa and maintains a full-time practice focusing on comprehensive, restorative, and implant dentistry. So today we'll be talking about the evolution of dentistry over the past few decades, the current dental landscape, and what our profession and industry might look like in the future. Our panelists will talk about the challenges they see every day and how technology, materials, and social connections with our colleagues and patients might help us navigate and form the future of our beloved profession. First questions to Bob Morgis. In the area of clinical dentistry, what do you think is the most pronounced change that has occurred over the past five to 10 years? Probably in clinical dentistry, I'd probably say the advent of digital with scanners, printers, all the technology that's changing at a fast rate. And I'm glad that at my age, I don't have to really necessarily get into all of it. But I would say from a clinical standpoint, all of the digital designing the milling, the chairside mills is probably the biggest thing that's happened in the last five years, no doubt. And I think it's going to continue, you know, to uh, evolve even more where more dentists may take their dentistry to more of a level that they're going to be the designer, they're going to be the miller, or they're going to um, outsource some of the designing, but be able to have a have their, their stuff either printed or uh, designed and milled right chair side and, and put it in. So that's what I think. So using that digital technology in the office, many of the dentists use it for scanning and then they refer it out to the lab. Do you see the GPs of the future doing most of this stuff in-house? I do. I, I see that maybe they'll have somebody design it and then send it to them and they'll have their own chair side mill, mill it chair side and be able to have it more in-house. To me right now in my practice, it takes a lot of time, and so I'd, I've elected to allow the laboratory to do all of that because my chairside time is valuable, so I don't want to be one that has to design, to mill, 
and do all that, but I think that's where it's going. Once that workflow is consolidated and, and the learning curve is reached, in the future, many of the GPs are going to be doing a lot of the whole process inside the office. I do. I, I have do a question. Yeah, very good. I have a question for Sabia. What is the biggest challenge we are facing in the dental industry now? For me personally, is just, I mean, go, seeing what we've gone through the last year, you know, with COVID and just the unknown, I think it puts us, a lot of us on edge. We don't really have any clear regulations really about what we should be wearing, what we should be doing. We actually don't even have full control over it. And I think for, for me, I know I've talked to a lot of my colleagues too, it's pretty tough to, you know, be shut down for two months, you know, and this is something I never thought in my lifetime I'd experience but you get shut down and you've got to rethink all your workflows and what you're going to do and how, how it's going to look when you come back. And just that fear that it could happen again, or, you know, the patients are looking at you differently. You know, you've added all these protocols. What if, it, if you do certain things a little bit differently now, what are they going to think? Do you yeah. think we're better off now as a profession I, since the pandemic has? I mean, honestly, I think we're doing, we had no cases of COVID in our office. Um, no patients got, I think we've done things really well as dentists, as in, uh, dental professionals. Do I think things are better? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'd say that they're better, but I do think that I was happy with the outcome with the patients coming back, feeling really comfortable. And um, we've seen a lot of dentistry. I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I've seen a huge amount of people wanting to come back, whether it's they're working from home and now they're like, you know what, maybe I should go see the dentist. We're getting lots of new patients. So, I mean, I think overall for the dental field, it's been a good thing because we were seeing patients who have not been to the dentist for a couple of years. But um, for what we're doing inside the daily routines, it's just hard to put that much money into certain things, like even gloves. I mean, my gloves were nine bucks, now they're 30 bucks. And you can't get the ones, I can't get the hot pink ones I like anymore. Or So there's some struggles. <laughs> so I have a question for, for Matt. And actually, Steve is a cellular molecular biologist. I want you to chime in on this too, if possible. So both you guys could approach this. If you were running the R&D department at GC, you're sitting down in the boardroom, you have all your PhDs sitting at the table, and it's the beginning of the year, and you say, okay, what are we going to focus on? What are, our, what are our priorities for this company to develop products? And you know there's a huge development you know, scale. It doesn't happen in the first year or the second year. What would those priorities be? Yeah, so we were actually talking about this last night, and like Bob had said, I think 3D printing is becoming very popular. I'm using it. I'm doing some of my own planning, design, everything. And on that note, I see that I can literally make a provisional and scan. So I can scan and then have a provisional design by like Medit. They're, they're putting it into the scanner side. So we're starting to see the ability to essentially uh, scan and print instead of scan and mill. So I think there's going to be a big demand for more resin materials, 3D printed resins that are going to be final restorations. There's going to be ability to have it layered and looking natural. There's even going to be the possibility to print ceramic-like materials. So I think that's a very important area to go because I think a lot of the limitations with milling are going to be overcome with printing eventually. And it's just in the beginning of its like technology curve, so. That's very interesting because I live in Austin, Texas, and we have a housing crisis there. And I'm reading about this company that's literally 3D printing homes. Yeah. Uh, $750,000 <laughs> for a 3D printed home. We should be able to 3D print a restoration for a tooth. And, and we're, we're right there, you know what I mean? Right. Like You can do it right now. And it's just maybe not quite prime time yet, but it's going to be, you know, the provisionals are starting to become very excellent. And 
a lot of you have seen this done, but it's becoming easier to do now. Because like the big thing, like you were saying, Bob, is I don't have time to necessarily design a restoration, but if it's like a CEREC again, if it's built into the software and they already have it where it's um, a quick proposal for a provisional, so I can see that the next step, and they're working on it, I talk to them a lot, they wanna make it where the scanner has the software, no extra costs, bring the fees down. So I think that's gonna really revolutionize mm -hmm. what we can do. Cause I never got a milling machine. It's not quite the right fit for my practice, but I love printing in the direction it's going. Mm -hmm. Steve, so as far as materials go. Yeah, so I see the industry catering to multiple um, groups. You know, I'm on one group that's always pushing the envelope there with. Matt over here, but there's another group that's being catered to for underserved communities and, you know, high efficiency, fast dentistry. And one of the problems with the materials that we use every day is they can't really be used that way effectively. And so, you know, we're sort of on the hunt for the great white amalgam, right? Something that you can put in easily, that's going to work really well, that'll last very long. It doesn't really exist yet. Um, so on that note, to help those materials out, I'd like to see us find a way to make more bacteriostatic materials. And that's one of the advantages Amalgam did have is that it was quite bacteriostatic, which is why some of the earlier carriers research was that you never really got wall lesions. Actually, Jack Farrakane over there, he's got a good paper in 14 or 15 on wall lesions with composite resin. So they do occur, but not as much on Amalgams because it's bacteriostatic. Now, I don't place Amalgams. I don't ever want to place them. But um, getting that property into the materials that we're trying to deliver fast that may form gaps might help. The other thing I'd like to see, and this is something I actually talked to him again about last night, um, more bioactivity or bioactive materials, bioactive glass in the composites we're using. Something I wanted to work on with one of his colleagues was uh, using bioactive fillers in composites so we can get true gingival attachment when we're doing like margin elevation. It would be another really cool thing to do. So basically a self-adhesive composite maybe. Where yeah, you don't need Bob, any adhesive. if you want to jump in on that, Yeah, I mean, I think please. if you're going to, if you can't, you know, if you can have a composite, you can just put in the tooth and it's self-adhesive without any bonding agent. That would really expedite a lot of things too, whether it's possible or not. There have been some global composites that have tried that. Vertice? Yeah, Vertice back in the floor. I think Shofu has one um, that's more recent, but I think it's just, you know, is it going to track? How's it going to do long term? You know, with those Vertice, I mean, you could, they Too said you could. It didn't yeah, work that good. No, it didn't work great at all. And the technique sensitivity, I mean, you had to sit there and rub 40 seconds or whatnot, you know, take a micro brush and kind of rub the. No, I would just say the margin for error on those materials are much smaller, though, because you can have a much smaller gap and start getting leakage and decay than you could with the older materials that had some more bacteriostatic properties. So that's why they're developing some of these self-adhesive. I'd like them to throw something in there to give it a little bit of insurance if it opens up under mechanical function in like, you know, two to five years. And bond strength, too. I don't know with the self-adhesive you're ever going to get that kind of bond strength, but... Well, you guys can do it. <laughs> we had our PhD the other thing... on. The other thing, I think if you could come up with a cement that you could heat a tooth up or put something on the tooth to be able to take the crown off of an implant or once you've cemented something, you want to be able to, to not have to cut it off to reverse the cement, you'd have a huge winner. That is probably one of the biggest struggles. I think one of the things that we don't have a solution for in dentistry right now is putting these, you know, we can, we can put temporary cement on a posterior tooth. You know, tell the patient to go and you know give it some time but anything we're working in the anterior it's so tricky because you're making a final decision at that point you know their lips are numb you're having them go home but I, I agree with you something that you could either reverse or maybe even it's like a try-in temporary cement 
that doesn't look like our traditional temperies, that's a little bit stronger, that maybe we can put some kind of warming feature or cooling feature, some kind of whatever it may be that GC can come up with. Here's another question for you guys, and anybody could grab it. So you guys, everybody here lectures a lot. You travel around the world, you're all renowned, famous people in the dental space, and many of us look up to you with great respect because of that. What do you say to a dentist who listens to your presentations and then they tell you, you know, everything you presented made, made a lot of sense, the science is behind it, but I've been doing it this way for 25 years using this method and I've had just tremendous success. What is your answer to that, doctor? My answer is this, as a speaker, do I have my opinions and biases? Yes, I'm biased towards what I use and what I know. If you're not having a problem with your adhesive, I wouldn't quit, I wouldn't listen to what I say. Mm -hmm. I really, I wouldn't. If, if, but if you are, I would say, hey, you should think about maybe using this material and this technique. But if your veneers aren't falling off, I wouldn't listen to what a speaker's saying. I'd have the confidence to know that what I've been using has been successful. How long, what, how much bond strength is enough? But isn't it the responsibility of a good healthcare provider to be open-minded about new products and say, listen, I know it's been working for me, but if there's, I don't know enough chemistry to judge what's really happening behind the scenes. And if this scientific data supports that if I treat a patient using this particular material, now I know uh, Matt's mom is an engineer. We talked about that on a podcast. And Matt runs these materials by his mom, am I right? One was a reinforced core material. You want to tell us about that? <laughs> she told you, yeah. My mom says a lot of stuff, but no, I, I, she was a master of finite element analysis. So she was a structural engineer and she um, did her thesis on making buildings that would withstand earthquakes, like really large buildings withstanding the earthquakes, understanding how stresses distribute. So sometimes I will reach out to her and ask her like about engineering examples of like crack repairs and fractures and try to just, you know, bridge the gap, if you will. Um, to answer the question, you, I actually didn't catch the last part of the question, but I wanted to just. Like if somebody's not having a problem, should they change to what you're saying as a speaker? Yeah, is it the responsibility oh, yeah. so, of healthcare providers? A lot of the times when I hear that, I think it's about expectations because we have to be open to change and we have to also be willing to accept that there's a difference between I'm not having a problem or what's my expectation. Like if you're having a, uh, like I have somebody that tells me that, you know, my onlays, I get like three or four fall out every year, but that's like 85, 90% success. Well, I'm trying to say it should be zero or as close as possible. So I try to bring those types of things up because a lot of the times it might be profitable and the patient might not be mad at you and there might not be a big consequence, but there is the ability to improve it. The big question is, does it fit your practice model? And I see a lot of the times where the practice model doesn't allow you to do certain things. So that's where it gets tricky and everyone has to have their own style of practice that makes sense for them. Yeah, I guess it also depends on what part of the career that doctor's in. If they're retiring in two years, they're probably not gonna to wanna to rebuild their entire protocol, but if they're 30 years old and they've been trying something that works for whatever years, then they're gonna be way more open to it. I have a perfect example of this. So in my practice, I bought a practice in 2013, my second one, and the original dentist had a great reputation. He didn't wanna stay. He wanted to transition six months out, start a new practice, in. I think it was Sun Valley. 
He ended up staying and I never forced him. He said, I want to stay with you. Then he bought loops. He started using rubber dam. He never used to do these things, but he just started picking it up little by little. And I would notice that he's doing this. He got four times loops, eight times magnification and so on. And then he finally told me, he's like, you know, I really like the way you practice. I've learned a lot from you. And it's really made, you know, the last part of my career, the last leg here, more exciting and very, you know, makes me excited to come to work. And I never planned, I, I thought he would do traditional dentistry and I would do biomimetic. Turns out he's doing all this stuff. And one day I tell this story all the time. One day he's like, I want to dismiss this patient. I'm like, what's going on, Mark? Like, what, why do you want to dismiss? It's a, you know, big procedure. And he goes, they don't want to let me use rubber dam, Matt. Like they, they can't tolerate the rubber dam. I'm like, when I bought your practice, you never, ever, you, like, I can't believe you want to dismiss. I'm like, do you remember just like four years ago? You know, so it's, it's, it's interesting to see. So Steve, let me ask you this. Um, related to patient care and the way we practice dentistry today, what do you predict will happen in the next five to, to 10 years? Not so much materials, but just the way we deliver dentistry and the way we take care of our practice. So I think that's a really apropos question for what's going on in dentistry right now. I, I've only been in practice five years and my experience coming out into, into dentistry was I had one vision of sort of, I don't know, just as Abdi said, that you just treat the patient in your chair and worry about that. And I found when I graduated, it was like three doctor columns, two hygiene columns. How can I be in 5,000 places at once? And, you know, that's not what I wanted to step into when I got out there. And how did we get to this place? I wasn't, I've been here for 20 years, but it feels like once we got more insurance dependent, they started driving the fees down. And especially today with the cost of labor going up, the cost of materials going up, you know, it's really, you can either work faster, use more efficient, maybe less quality materials, um, or you've got to give some dentistry away for free and just stick to your guns. Or there's another option. I, I thank Brian, who's sitting in the front for pushing me going towards fee for service. But when I look at what's starting to appear on the lecture circuit a lot right now, it is about how to transition your practice to fee for service. And it's about getting back to you know, what are your goals? How do you want to practice? Do you want to do high quality? Do you want to take care of the underserved or do you just want to be profitable and there's nothing wrong with that but for those of us that really want to slow it down enjoy what we do and be very patient focused we're really wrestling with how do we make that profitable the question i get a lot in private messages on instagram for people seeing my cases they go steve how do you make it affordable i gotta tell you the first year i was giving it away because i was looking at it as an education for myself to do the type of dentistry i want to do um and do you now accept insurance um I accept at a network now. Okay. The only reason I say that is because when you're doing what you guys do, which is amazing, and Abdi, when he was talking about the posterior for two hours, mm -hmm. how would you charge for that? Hold because on. I get the question yeah. from a lot of people as you're lecturing, and you show a beautiful case, and, and they say, well, I don't think I could do that because I wouldn't be able to charge enough or my insurance is going to pay. I want to hear what you do or how, how much would you charge for a biomimetic margin elevation and, and a restoration in your practice. If it had a overlay on top and this is based no, on my or, or just like a direct where you raise it and then you do a direct composite that takes you an hour and a half. I did a case that took two hours. I had to do like it was deep caries removal. I even put rib on down there, did a margin elevation separate, then brought it up. It took about two hours, probably around $500, $700. I, 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 I admire that. I charge more than that. No, you, I know, should, no but I'm, yeah. I'm just saying that I think it's fantastic. I mean, you're doing those patients a very good yeah. service at a great 
it's it's gonna go up as I you know yeah, I'm a exactly. young and it's yeah. gonna go up to about a thousand and I'm I'm, I'm positioning my practice for people that want to come get this care I'm here for you um, but yeah there you know before I, I had done that for two hundred fifty dollars a year ago just because I was learning how to do it but now it's closer to about five hundred to seven hundred Matt you were gonna say something yeah so when I graduate I got my first practice right out of school literally and I remember having this conversation with Abdi and he was so encouraging of it but. I didn't see opportunities to do like I've been trained by Pascal, gone through this program. I wanted to do this type of dentistry and the job opportunities weren't there. And I was looking for the right opportunity, but I couldn't find it. So I bought my first office, treated it like dental school. I literally had a morning patient, and an afternoon patient. It was super low overhead still to date. Like even when I sold it, the rent was uh, 900 bucks a month, you know, and it was 700 square feet, but it was two chairs, pristine, a deck, everything looked so nice. And I remember I was in network for a short period of time, but I would do fillings that were like $85 and spend three hours on them. But I considered that like my residency or my internship and little by little raised and raised and raised. So 10 years later, now for the same composite, I charge 850 to $1,000. And for a bigger composite, I'll charge upwards of 1500 and it's patients value that but the problem I see so I see on Instagram right now and social media everybody wants to do this like the younger generation see it it's like you, someone shows it someone sees it someone wants to repeat it and like I get that and that's great but not I guess it's not for every patient you know at that fee like it, unless you're gonna start low and yeah. that's always gonna be that lower price option I worry about what that means to patients because I don't think the market supports everybody doing no. this you know i think this is for the patient that's retreating something has had problems or is extremely like you know they're gonna buy organic food and spend a lot of money on all this stuff that will they care so much but the average patient needs to have an option too and if that's a, a five-year solution or a two-year yeah. solution or a 10-year solution i think that has to exist and that's where it gets really hard for me to imagine what direction it's going to go because everybody wants to do this they're mentioning it every day. Steve, you have a Yeah, I just want to, sorry to steal more time because I literally got asked this like two nights ago and I sent some random person, I never met a bunch of voice notes on Instagram. It's amazing, social media. Yeah. And, uh, but no, he asked because he was an associate and it's kind of going to address more of what Bob asked, which is that at some point you have to decide how much dentistry are you willing to give away for free and then you've got to call it. So I said, maybe in your office, you know, you've got a certain amount of time to be profitable. You can do a two surface resin or three surface resin. So maybe you have a cutoff that once it gets to this size, yeah, I'd like to do it the way Steve does it online, the way Matt does it online, but you're not there yet profitability wise. And at that point, you got to go indirect, maybe do an overlay. Yes, you know, that seems more aggressive than what we're doing, but it's still less aggressive than doing a crown, which maybe your owner doc might be doing. Yes, Let me yeah. just add to this. Please. Don't listen to any of us if you're going to take notes on this, because yeah. we are not your average dentist. We're all educators. We all do things. We post them on Instagram. We have people who DM us. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from. But if you're really truly wanting to know what the true dentist, how much time, they may not be doing that. But if we're doing a case or if we're looking for, for people, but it's not, I would say maybe 5% of people are doing this type of work for that many hours. So but remember, our audience for Viva Learning, we have a tremendous amount of young dentists that are out there. So what you're saying here yeah, but is, is it very, very appropriate for yeah, them as but far is as... is it real life dentistry? But it's figuring out the, it's figuring yeah. out the path to... Right, but is some of this hours, is it to document? Because I know I'll do some cases that are, I won't charge a lot or I'll spend a lot of time, but I'm documenting, we're putting in yeah. those pencils, we're adding that, you know, there's a lot of stuff that happens behind the mm -hmm. scenes that looks good for a photograph maybe because it's being documented. I don't have the time to take 25 post-ops for one great shot.
The problem I see as some of the lecturers are selling these beautiful cases, and then you go up to them and you ask them, wow, that's just a beautiful case. Who's your ceramist? And what's the fee for that ceramic veneer? I'd rather have an average prep and a world-class ceramist if I'm a lecturer than a world-class prep and an average ceramist. It's your ceramist who makes you look good, and then the audience in there going, I could never do that. I can't pay $1,500 for a lab bill. I'm, but I'm you've got to be a good dentist. You've got to manage your margins. But, you've got to manage your ginger. I mean, listen, you know what they get in my office? Hand. If I'm doing a poster composite, they're getting a good marginal ridge. They're getting a good contact. They're getting good shade. Right. But it's not going to be, a, in my practice, it's not going to be a two-hour restoration, unfortunately. Yeah. So as a segue to this, and uh, let's start with, with you, Sabia, for this question. Everybody could chime in as we end this podcast here. What is your one piece of advice that you would say to a dentist just out of dental school to help him or her succeed in their practice? And you each have about two minutes. I guess for me as a materials, for, you know, for the dental advisor, we're looking at all these different products. So if I lecture, everybody wants to know, what are you using? Or I'm getting zirconia deep bonds. And I think I would just tell the dentist to just learn about why we're using these materials and what they actually do. Because I can tell you a cement, but you know, there's differences when you have a retentive preparation. So just taking the time to understand why instead of just tell me what you use. And I'm sure all the lecturers out here get that too. I just want to know what you're using. Well, really take the time. It doesn't take a lot of time, but just learn why and the mechanism. And then, you know, your brain, we're, we're all smart people. We made it through dental school. I think that would, that's, that would be my word of advice as far as clinical dentistry. Yeah, and, that, and I think that's great with materials. If you want to also cover happiness, career satisfaction in, in your response as far as advice, please do. Um, so I got some really good advice a couple of years ago from a strange source, and it said, uh, pursue, pursue your uh, passion, profits will follow. And my, my advice to anybody graduating is just know what's most important to you, what makes you happy, and make that the focus of how you set up your career. And those profits aren't always monetary, but usually when you're doing what you love, that follows as well. Um, so not to be too touchy-feely, but that's, that's why. Yeah, I know. Uh, and then the only time a resume really takes two hours is if it's severely structurally compromised. It's routine stuff, not that long, but anyway. So there's two. One of them would be to invest in yourself, like not only in CE and education, but even doing if you want to practice a certain way, put the time in. It's not, you know, like you said, profits will follow, but like be willing to do it in your first few years, because that's the time where a lot of habits are formed. And the second one is to find a mentor, because a lot of like I, I didn't go into dentistry planning to do this type of dentistry at all. I wanted to own 10 offices and have an office like this guy here and have 10 of them actually. But Pascal, he inspired me. Like he didn't even try. He just came and lectured and I heard him and I saw the photos and I was like, I really want to do this, you know, and it changed everything. So now I tell, you know, graduating dentist, find a mentor. It'll mm -hmm. greatly expedite your learning curve. And there's no way to do the type of dentistry that you want without following in somebody's footsteps. So there's no shame in having a mentor and there's so much to gain from a mentor. Very nice. basically Bob, stole, last word. You basically stole my answer, but I, I, I will, I mean, honestly, my first five years out of dental school, I had no money. I literally had no money. I had 500 hours of CE, but if somebody came in that needed a veneer or an implant or a major reconstruction, I could do it. I had no money, but I had the ability to to do these cases. I had a great mentor who who basically, you know, took me under his wing. And when you have people who believe in you and and really see something that you don't see in yourself, just like Pascal did, anything's possible. 
And I would also say anytime you have the ability to do your own practice, you don't get wealthy working for somebody normally as an associate. Learn from somebody who you trust, approach dentists who you admire, learn from them, and then get out on your own and start your own practice because it's going to give you the best ability to do what you want, how you want to do it. And, and I want to make one thing perfect clear. I respect everything you guys are doing. Right. Amazing work. I mean, and I love seeing it. And I didn't want to sound like immediate debt and ceiling is not a good thing. You have to understand the concept of immediate debt and ceiling. And, and when I've seen too many people go on the lecture stage and show immediate debt and ceiling, and then they're doing a bisacryl temporization of porcelain veneer, and all of a sudden, they don't tell you that that is going to be a bitch to get off. It's not coming off. And, and, and they don't tell you that. And the minute you try that, that's, that's, you're going to have a problem. You're never going to do an immediate dent and ceiling again. And I would love to hear what, like Jack Farrakane and the people who are doing bonding, is immediate dent and ceiling a cure-all, or is it that spectacular that it should be done or is it something that is necessarily not, it's not necessary because for me, I don't have sensitivity with my bonding. And for me to do another step, is it really gonna benefit that much more? I'm just asking that question. Yeah. Well, thanks, Bob. We really appreciate the feedback. We're gonna have a separate webinar just with you for five hours <laughs> on this topic. Yeah. So thank you very much. Really we, we really wanna thank our panel discussion. I love the enthusiasm all across the board. Thank you, Viva Learning, for logging in, and uh, thank you, GC and Steer Education, for this opportunity. Have a good night. Thank you. Thank you.